how do you become beautiful you? You have to access his power. And that's what we've been talking about during these four weeks. Here's the logic in this series, and I want you to follow the logic. Christian scriptures reveal that God is at work in us to make us more like himself. Let's stop right there for a second. So God is working to make us more like him. You with me so far? All right. So when he goes to work, creating these nine attributes that we're studying, So far, we've looked at love and joy. Today, we're going to look at peace, these other nine qualities. We get a picture of what God is like. Does that make sense to you? If he's wanting us to be like him, and this is what he's building in us, this must be like him. So let me tell you this, of these nine qualities, if your idea of God doesn't include love, You have the wrong idea of God. If your idea of God doesn't include joy, you have the wrong idea of God. If your idea of God doesn't include peace, I'm not going to do all nine of them. (laughs) You have the wrong idea of God. People will say occasionally to me, not many people say this, but occasionally someone will say, I don't believe in God. And my first question is, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Because I might not believe in him either. Because the idea they have of God isn't God. I don't believe in so many ideas that some people have about God. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I believe in that about God. That's the God I've come to know, and that's the God of the Scriptures. So when God is building this in you, he's making us like him. Now, that's good news. You know why? That means you can be godly. Now, don't mishear me. You can't be God. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not God, neither am I. (laughs) That came as news to some of you. (laughs) What? What? You can't be God, but you can be godly. Here's the primary scripture that we're using for this series, and we're actually breaking this down Word for word. And we've been in it now for for four weeks. When the Holy Spirit, let's just say it out loud. You've You've got it right here. Let's say it out loud. When the Holy Spirit controls our lives, he will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. This is what we can become. This is who we can become. Can you only imagine if when people described you, they described you like that? Can you only imagine when you thought of you, you thought of yourself like that? And what we're learning together is this is entirely possible, beyond possible. It is God's desire for your life. Like when you wonder, I wonder what God's will is. This is God's will for you to become this, for you and I to possess these, for you and I to exude and embody and live these every day. Does this make sense to you? God's will. But you're not going to do it by yourself. You got to turn on the power in your pocket. To become beautiful you, you're going to need God's help. I need God's help. You need God's help. 
Now, during this series, we've already looked at four pictures of this. Like, what does it mean to have God's help? Four pictures. We imagined a hiker on a high mountain trail. Like, I've been to 16,000 feet in the Himalayas. I've been to 15,000 feet in the Andes. I told you that there were times where the trail was so narrow, and I was having vertigo, and the only way that I could keep myself from plummeting off that cliff is to lean against the mountain face on the other side. I needed something immovable to hold my internal gyroscope steady, or else I would have, I'd, I'd have gone off the mountain. So what do you do? You lean and you walk. You lean and you walk. Here's the mountain. There's the drop-off. Which side do you want to be on? (laughs) But what did we learn? That some people do this. Some people tease with it. I know. (laughs) I know. Your stomach just did that thing, didn't it? Mine too. Like, some people play on the edge. I'm telling you, don't do that. I fell off that. Don't play at the edge. Lean against the mountain. That was the first picture we learned. Second picture we learned was about an aqueduct. I mean, here in California, we understand this. Now, we're getting our fair share of rain. We need to ship some of it north. Usually, though, the rain goes to the north and comes down those concrete mountain basins to the south. It's dead concrete until it carries life-giving water. And that's like God's power in us. That's what it's like to have the life force of Jesus in you. We learned about the heft and the weight of the keel of a sailboat. It's the part of the sailboat you don't see. It's under the water line, but the weight of the keel under the water line is actually what gives stability to the sailboat. And the nine inner qualities that we're studying together are what will hold you steady in the storms of your life. And then every week, we have been referencing the relationship between a vine and a branch, the strength and nutrients of the vine, which is really a root that you can see above ground. It's a root that has all of the life force that it gives to the branch so that the branch can produce the fruit. And the Bible says that Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and the fruit that grows from our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is this making sense to you? Still with me? So today I'm going to give you a fifth picture. A fifth picture, and it's an airplane. Now, with human brain power, we have built some of the coolest aircraft in history. A plane can be designed. A plane can be assembled. A plane can look absolutely fabulous. I've seen some paint jobs on some of these private jets, and it's like, dude, it's just amazing how beautiful that is. With brains and the brawn of manufacturing, then there's beauty. But brains, brawn, and beauty can only go so far. Living life without the power of God is like having a beautiful aircraft that doesn't have gas. Can you imagine telling people that's my plane? Brains, beauty, and brawn. But then they see you pushing it down the freeway. 
How dumb would that be? And yet if we try to live by brains, beauty, and brawn alone, we're actually pushing the plane down the freeway. By adding Christ to your life, what's happening is you're adding fuel that enables you to fly. God, by his spirit, gives you the fuel to love, the fuel to have joy. And today's topic, the ability and fuel to have peace in your life. Now, this is a very personal and precious topic to me because, you know, there was a season of chaos in my life where I didn't have a lot of peace. Who's had a season of chaos in your life? Yeah? Who's had more than one? (laughs) Fear and guilt and shame nagged at me, weighed me down. I couldn't sleep without pills or alcohol, couldn't function without medicine in my system. And I literally craved peace of mind and peace with God and peace with others because I didn't have it for a moment for a couple of years there until I finally humbled myself and I said, God, I can't do this. I can't conjure it up, can't figure it out, can't manufacture it. I can't find peace. And I asked him, Would you please give me peace? And from that moment, he started teaching me how to once again experience peace in my life. These days, peace is my narcotic. So when conflict arises, I just begin to pray, God, show me the path to peace in this situation. I mean, I wonder how many of you would give almost anything for just a moment of that, just a season of peace of mind or peace with others or peace with God or serenity in your heart. I crave it. I want to look at the Christian scriptures where Jesus teaches something oxymoronic. You know what an oxymoron is? You put two words together that just don't go together. Like they shouldn't be placed together. Like airline food. You know, it's like... (laughs) Pepperdine football. I mean, you know, two words that shouldn't, you know, Microsoft works. uh, Nice cat. I mean, come on, come on. Never, never, don't, don't put those together. Jesus did this. He put two words together and you go, huh? He put the word storm with the word peace. Now, it would make sense if he had said storm and fear. It would have made sense if he had said storm and panic. But Jesus tweaked our thinking when he put together storms and peace. I want to give you a visual of this. The followers of Jesus had uh, been with him on the shore while he was teaching. And then they got into a boat to sail across the Sea of Galilee. Now, to geographically give you a picture of this, the Sea of Galilee is kind of down in a cereal bowl. So there's hills on on both sides. So it's kind of down in this depressed part of the geography. And so what happens is storm systems kind of build on one side of those hills, and then they just come pouring over and just drop on the Sea of Galilee. So they can hit fast and they can hit hard. And so they're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a storm hit them. 
and the disciples panic, and then they look for Jesus. Now, these weren't huge boats, probably from me to that column right there, you know, maybe 20, uh, 25 feet or something like that, these fishing boats. But the disciples are kind of in the middle and at one end, and what they find is Jesus at the other end of the boat, and he's sleeping like a child, cuddled under a blanket, completely unafraid of the storm, sound asleep. Now, here's what's remarkable about the story to me. Same boat, same storm, two diametrically opposed reactions. And what this tells me is there's apparently a choice built into this. How we react to storms. I'm going to give you a summary of the story of Jesus on the boat with the disciples in the storm. Here's the first part. Storms hit everyone. Even the followers of Jesus. I think this is an important theological point. Giving your life to Jesus, giving your whole heart and future to Jesus, giving your full devotion to Jesus, making him master and leader of your life does not mean that there will not be storms. Jesus had storms. His disciples had storms. You have storms. I have storms. Why? Because this is not heaven. This is earth. And on this earth, we will have what? We'll have storms. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and say, this is not heaven, and boy, do I know it. Go ahead and tell them. (laughs) This is not heaven. (laughs) Boy, do I know it. So the question that begs to be asked is, how am I going to respond to storms? So when the sun doesn't shine, when rogue winds blindside you, when you are in turmoil within and without, how are you going to respond? When the pipes in your upstairs bathroom burst and your downstairs is flooded, how are you going to respond? When your car breaks down, how are you going to respond? When the holidays hit and relatives are coming, how Are you going to respond? When you're fired from your job, how are you going to respond? When your spouse leaves, how are you going to respond? When your spouse stays, how are you (laughs) going to respond? When the doctor says, you're not pregnant, how are you going to respond? When the doctor says you are pregnant, how are you going to respond? When a parent dies, when a child dies, when a dream dies, how are you going to respond? There was a man in the Bible. His name was Paul. He was assailed by the gale force winds of life. I mean, this guy was pounded by the waves, pounded by storms of his circumstances. And I think early on, Paul probably responded like most of us to storms. I believe he probably tried to batten down his emotional hatches. I think he tried to protect the little sailboat of his heart. I think he trimmed his emotional sails and I think he held tight to the wheel and he hoped for the best. But over time, after a lot of storms, Paul found that God had gotten him through every time. Let me give you a little storm math. 
so far, you have survived 100% of your storms. 100% of your storms. God's gotten you through. So when we get to the next storm, logic should teach us. Our spirit should remind us that the God who got us through will still still get us through. It doesn't always happen. But it did with this man, Paul. He's going to write something in the Bible. He, he wrote a lot of our New Testament. And the words I'm going to put up on the screen next, he wrote while he was in prison anticipating his execution by the Roman government because he followed Jesus. So you might expect he might write something like this. Help! Come quickly! Does anybody have a key? You know, what would you write? You're in jail waiting to be killed. Here's what he wrote. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. I mean, he might have even sung it. Don't worry. I mean, he might have. Here's another translation, same verse. Be anxious for nothing. That's the same word for anxiety. That stirring worry. Are you a worrier? Yeah? I think a lot of us are. I lean that way. You know, a New York Times uh, article reported a study that was done that has determined that some people are genetically predisposed to worry. There's actually a gene that they have identified in the body that links us to worry more easily. And to test whether or not you have that gene, the minute I mentioned it, did you worry you have it? There it is. It's in your jeans. It's in my jeans. Power in your pocket and worry in your jeans. I'm going to have to rewrite this whole sermon. <laughs> 60 to 90% of deaths are related to stress. 60 to 90%. 800 million dollars a year spent on anti-anxiety medicine. I was about 50 million of that all by myself at one time, at one time. That doesn't take into account those who drink too much, eat too much, shop too much, you know, just trying to deal with how you feel. And if it's not worry, it's the twin sister of worry, which is fear. How many of you are old enough to remember Ann Landers? Right? So for you younger folk... There used to be something called a newspaper. It was like paper. It was like paper. It'd come to your house. Have the news on it. You could read it like a book. Oh, a book? That's a thing that's kind of hard on the outside, soft on the inside. Ann Landers was a newspaper columnist who would give advice. Very famous. So people would write in and ask questions. And she was asked one time, what is the most frequently address topic out of thousands and thousands and thousands of questions people would ask you about for advice, what was the most 
ask. She said, how to deal with fear. I mean, we know the common fears, claustrophobia, fear of enclosed spaces, arachnophobia, fear of spiders, aquaphobia, fear of water. Most fears fall into some predictable categories. I want to give you a couple of them. First, there's the fear of the unknown. This is all the what-ifs of life. What if terrorists strike? What if the economy collapses? You know, it's just like the what if. Like we sit around sometimes and just imagine all the possibilities of what could go wrong in life. We have worries about our kids. We have worries about our grandkids. What will their life be like? Who will they end up marrying? Mortified doesn't describe how Jane's parents felt after they met her fiancé. Mortified. Mortified. Because they knew Jane was a little naive. They were worried about it. They met this guy. He had tattoos. I have tattoos, but his were vile words all over his body. Just these nasty little words. Every other word that came out of his mouth was nasty. There was an air of hostility about him. I mean, they didn't like him at all. And after he left, I mean, they knew, you know, sweet little daughter was naive. Dear, the mom said, he doesn't seem like a very nice man. Mom, Jane said, if he wasn't nice... Why would he be doing 500 hours of community service? Oh, Jane, 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 Jane. We fear the unknown. We fear the uncontrollable. The uncontrollable. An eyewitness to a recent tragedy which claimed a lot of lives said this. I couldn't stop it. Couldn't stop it. Have you had that feeling? Like you see a friend or a family member who's really ill, and it's beyond your control to turn that around. You feel your finances slipping off a table, and it's like, I, don't, I, don't, I can't stop it. It just feels like it's a runaway train. Like, what, what is it? Where, when has it been for you where you felt like you just couldn't control it? Then there's the unrelated. These are the scattered little fears and worries that are just all over the place, like fussy children, overdue bills, school schedules, ringing telephones, overcrowded schedules. I mean, you get the picture. Psychiatrists call this stress contamination. It's like there's this pollution around us. It's just like the energy in the air, and it affects all of us. Who feels this sometimes? It's like it's just everywhere I look, there's just a little more stress. And it's all these little fears, and they just pile up. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have fears about the future? Like some aspect of the future. It's like, I I don't know, you know, like what's coming. And it's almost as if you're saying the storms of today are just not bad enough, so I'm going to think about future storms, and we create this internal hurricane, this fret, and we stew, and we worry about that. But if we only cracked open our Bible, what we would read is Jesus saying, do not be anxious, anxiety, for tomorrow, because you have enough to have anxiety over today. Can I get an amen? Amen. I don't need tomorrow's anxiety. I can barely deal with today's anxiety. Or how about this one? Oh, not that one. That one. Can all your worries 
at a single moment to your life? What's the answer? Okay. So if worry can't do... Here's what I love about Jesus. Adding time to your life. Jesus, that's just a little thing for him. That's just a little thing. But if your worry can't even do that little thing, what's the use of worrying over big things? It's actually a good question. I heard this quote recently. I really liked it. God knows your tomorrow like you know your yesterday. God knows your yesterday. God knows your today. And God knows your tomorrow. He knows everything about you. He knew your alarm wouldn't go off on time this morning and you'd oversleep. He knew you'd be stressed getting here. He knew you wouldn't find one of your children's shoes and the clothes you wanted to wear would be dirty. He knew you'd yell at your kids in the car and he knew you'd walk in and smile at the greeters at the door. Jesus knew <laughs> all of that about you. So how about you let the one who holds tomorrow be the one who holds your hand? Does that make sense to you? Two of you? How many of you have concerns about financial storms? Come on. You either worry about money or you worry about some level of financial storm that is looming. You see the storm clouds forming around you. That's why I love this. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to do a little homework. How many of you have your note sheet with you? Have a note sheet? Those of you who have your note sheet, just hang on to it for a second. Maybe get a pen. Now, here's, here's the first thing I want you to look at is glorious riches. First of all, how rich do you think God is? Probably pretty rich. Probably pretty rich. So, I want you to circle my, if you've got your notes, circle my, because this isn't saying a God. It's not even saying the God. This is for, this whole promise is for people who have a personal relationship with God because you've trusted his son Jesus. So now he's your, he's your, he's connected. You're the branch in the vine. He's my God. Then I want you to circle the word will. Doesn't say might. Doesn't say maybe. Doesn't say the odds are. Says my God will. And then he's going to meet, circle the word all. Not some. Not most. Not the easy ones. He'll meet all your, now circle the word, needs. Notice it doesn't say greeds. The promise is not that God will give you everything you want, but he will provide everything you what? Everything you need. Remember, what we want is the absence of storms. What we need is peace in the storm. So our first point is even the followers of Jesus can't avoid storms. Second point, followers of Jesus can't stop storms. Once they start, we don't have the power to stop them. There's stuff you can't stop and stuff I can't stop. But there is someone who can stop the storm, 
So jump to point three. Jesus is powerful enough to stop storms. I want us to look at the story in the Bible that we referenced just a minute ago. As the evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. That was the Sea of Galilee. So they took Jesus in the boat, and they started out, leaving the crowds behind. But look, some people are chasing Jesus. I love that. Other boats are following. But soon a fierce storm came up, and high waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat, head on a cushion. Disciples woke him up shouting. How many of you want to be awakened with shouts? You'd think Jesus would wake up by going, ah! Like you panic. It's like your phone ringing in the middle of the night. It's like something must be wrong. Not how Jesus rolled. They're screaming, teacher, don't you care we're going to drown? Jesus woke up. Doesn't even respond to them. Looks around. Sees the wind. Sees the waves. And he says one word. Peace. Now the waves are listening. Now the wind is listening. And then he gives this command, be still. I've often wondered, is he saying this part to the wind and the waves? Or is he saying this part to the disciples who were freaked out? Probably saying it to all of them. Peace. Be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and there was great what? There was great calm. It's both humbling and encouraging. Humbling to know that we can't stop storms. Encouraging to know that Jesus can't. Why would we not want a relationship with the one who can bring peace and calm to our storms? One more point just to summarize the story, and then we're going to get into some practical things. Jesus is not shaken by the storms. Was that obvious in the story, yes or no? Yes or no? He was not shaken by the storm. That's why peace is not found in a place. That's why peace is not found in a pill. That's why peace is found in a person, because Jesus just doesn't get shaken by the storm. So we want to be, follow me here, we want to be a branch that is held steady by the strength of the vine. Does that make sense? We want to be the boat held steady by the heft and the weight of the keel. Does that make sense? We want to be the hiker that finds stability by leaning against an immovable mountain. Does this make sense? It's a picture of you being held steady by the hand of God. So let's get personal here. Let me give you a couple of personal steps to peace in the storms, peace in the storms. First of all, pray about everything. Does this make sense? How many of you pray the most when you're in a storm? Oh, don't make me launch into a sermon on honesty. <laughs> How many of you really do some of your praying in your storm? How many of you occasionally forget to pray when it's all good? Don't make me. You're pushing my buttons. They're all getting pushed. Like, this makes sense. Of course we'll pray. Not about everything, but we'll sure pray about storms. We'll sure pray about storms. What the Bible says, pray about what? Say it. Pray, 
pray about everything. Pray when it's good. Pray when you're confused. Pray when it hurts. Pray when it's hard. Nobody would disagree with this point. Now, it's easier to do that when we're in trouble. We cry out for help. But talking to God all the time, all the time, should become a personal daily practice. Am I right? See, here's what happens. If we don't do this, we're going to find ourselves trying to work it out. If we don't do this, we're going to find ourselves fighting for control of the boat in the middle of the storm. If we don't depend on and ask for God's help, we're going to live with the anxiety of a false belief that it's all up to us. That's why you have to pray about everything. Pray about everything. Just get in the habit. Just pray about everything. Thank you for this day. Thank you for my church. Thank you for the person on my right, the person on my left. Just pray, 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 pray. Why pray? Because prayer reminds us of God's bigness. Let me say it like this. When you're in a storm, you don't want a little God. You don't want a tiny little God. You don't want sweet little baby Jesus. You want big grown-up Jesus. Am I right or am I right? To give us a sense of God's majesty and to give us a sense of God's magnitude, the Bible writer poetically captures God saying this. Heaven is my throne. Takes all of heaven just to be my seat. And earth, you think you're so big and bad? It's where I rest my feet. And then my hand made all these things. When I'm in a storm, I don't want an impotent God. I don't need a small God. When we looked at that verse a minute ago, pray about all things, the word that's used there actually carries the idea of worship. And you know what worship is? It's acknowledging who God is. It's giving him his worth, worth-ship is the meaning. It's saying God is mighty, I'm giving him his due. God is awesome, I'm giving him his rightful place in my life. God is big and powerful, I'm giving him my devotion and trust. So when we pray, praise, when we adore adoration, it helps us remember again how big God is, that God is a heavenly father who is strong enough to help you, and he's also gentle enough to hold you. How many of you are glad about that? Three of you are? More of you are? Prayer reminds us of God's bigness. It also reminds us of God's nearness. We would all agree that in a storm, there's likely going to be a moment of fear. But wouldn't you agree that there's an entirely different level of fear in a storm if you're facing the storm alone? Would you agree with that? If you were alone in your house and you hear violent home invaders getting ready to crash through your front door, would you want to be protected by a chubby basset hound or a trained German shepherd? Basset hound, German shepherd. 
I heard a couple of basset hounds out there. <laughs> we want a big dog in that fight. And we want a close, I don't want the neighbor's dog. I want that dog in my house. Does this make sense? That's what God reminds us. I will never desert you, and I will never what? Prayer reminds us of this. When you're talking to someone, you know they're there. Just how big he is, and just how close he is. Some of us pray, and we really don't believe God is big, and we really don't believe God is close enough to help us. So what we do, we continue to carry our worries on our back by ourselves. That's why somebody said worry is practical atheism. It's living as if there is no God. Like if you're going to worry, why would you pray? And if you're going to pray, why would you? You're with me. Personal, this is personal. Pray about everything. Pray about everything. Here's the second one. Thank him for all he's done. Thank him for all he's done. Right from the Bible, thank him for all he's done. Gratitude changes our thinking. Have you experienced this? Gratitude changes our state of being. It changes our mind. Giving thanks takes our focus off what's wrong in life, and it places it on what's right in life. Giving thanks takes our focus away from what we don't have, and it puts us on the blessings we do have. Giving thanks doesn't dwell on the bad. It makes us consider the good. At minimum, when you give thanks, you may not get to good, but you will get to, well, I guess things could be worse. That's not a bad step. Your kid comes home with a C on the report card, you can say, could be worse. Right? Finances run thin before the month runs out, you can say, it could be worse. Car breaks down, you could say, could be Step out of the shower, look at your body in the mirror. Can't get worse than that. Have you given thanks today? Like, what, what time is it? Don't look at your clock, because pastor's not going over. What, but have you given thanks today? Cold, cloudy day. But have you focused on the good? Have you said thank you? When you woke up, did you say thank you for waking me up, Lord? When you're at the table for lunch here in about 10 minutes, Will you say thank you for more food than I can possibly eat? If you have someone in your life who cares for you and loves you, have you said thank you? I mean, what should you say when you read the Bible and you find out that God is head over heels in love with you? I saw a quote that I really liked about peace. It says, peace is a quality of soul. Is a quality of soul not a quality of circumstance. And if you want greater quality in your soul, fill your life with gratitude. Fill your life with gratitude. 
What we're going to do to end today, yeah, I'm at the end. See, you should give thanks. <laughs> I want us to make an out loud declaration together. Statement of faith, a statement of truth, and I want us to repeat it all out loud together. You ready? Here it is. Say it with me. Peace is not the absence of storms. It's calm within the storm. Peace is not found in a place. It's found in a person. His name is Jesus. Let's pray together. So Jesus, peace giver, peacemaker, storm stopper, Teach us to pray all the time, good, bad, and ugly. Pray all the time. And in our prayers, teach us to build in thanks. It won't be that the storm stops, but we will no longer be focused on the storm. We'll be looking at you. When we pray, when we give thanks, we're looking at you. And when we're engaged with you in that dynamic, there is peace. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.